What's up, everybody? We are so lucky to have Brett Larkin here today. Um, as you know, what we talk about so much in this podcast is on giving people specific tools, actionable ways to move their life forward, to transform, to to be better, right? To just we we want to keep elevating. Uh, and you just put out your book, Yoga Life, and we're going to talk about the book by itself. But I think what'll be really interesting for people to hear first and foremost is how did you get to this place where you use yoga in such a transformative way in your own life as a as a grounding tool and in all the different ways that you talk to your readers about as kind of this this anchor in your life? How'd you get there? Mm. Well, like many people, I suffered from extreme anxiety. So that was what led me to yoga initially is I was always worried about when the other shoe was going to drop. It's really funny because when I think back to my pre-yoga life, I'm not really sure how I functioned. Like it's kind of like a haze mm. a little bit. Um, and so yoga became this incredible place where I was able to realize that I was not my thoughts. I was able to observe my inner dialogue. And it was always for me so much more about the physical, uh, so much more than just the physical practice. Sure. The next evolution, however, though, and I, so I did all the typical things that one does when they fall in love with yoga. I became a teacher. I did advanced trainings. I ended up starting a YouTube channel, which is now, you know, has half a million subscribers. I put yoga trainings online. I did all these things, but where everything really shifted was. Uh, I had this wild year in which I became a new mom. So I gave birth to my first son. My father died of cancer. Uh, he was living with me in my home. I was his sole care provider. Like my parents were divorced. <laughs> he didn't have anyone else. It was like me and him walking through a death portal together. And my business, uh, the online trainings really exploded that year as well. So I was in this 12-month period of scaling my business giving birth to my son, becoming a mom for the first time, saying goodbye to my dad. It was humbling because what happened was that I didn't have time to practice the yoga that I had been doing up to that point. I no longer had time to go to group yoga classes. I no longer could even do a lot of the 20, 10 minute routines that I was telling people to do on my own social media channels. It was so humbling. And I remember thinking that I was in this period of overwhelm where I needed yoga more than ever before, but I needed a new kind of yoga that integrated into my daily life, hence the title yoga life, rather than yoga being like another thing on my to-do list that needed to take up time. So that's a little bit the origin story. I love it. I love it. Um, I mean, we share a good bit of these things, right? family member my father died of cancer as well and it's when those things happen you kind of you you get stuck reevaluating a lot whether you want to or not and what i hear is yoga was something that you use as a tool to deal with anxiety and stress early on and then when anxiety and stress presented themselves really fully right maybe in a new way or, or a different way than they had before you have to check yourself a little bit and come up with a, a different variant of what yoga was going to mean to you then compared to how it started. Um, and I thought maybe one, one of the things that we can dig into, you said there are many roles beyond the physical. I tell people all the time when they're looking for transformation, the transformation is possible for all of us. That kind of growth mindset sort of ideas. We, we can all change. The question is, do we believe that there's a better future possible for us? And then are we going to do the work 
to diligently go after and find the tools that will shift our life, our consciousness, our physical body, our relationship to other people. And so you mentioned that yoga plays many of those roles for you. Walk people through this a little bit. Obviously, it helped you with anxiety, but how in the way that you integrate, maybe in the way that you start out integrating, but also in the way that you do it now, how does yoga help you in more ways than just the physical? Yeah, I know, especially for your listeners, we were excited to dive into some of these philosophical tenets of yoga that often get overlooked. So as the backstory, the principal philosophical text in yoga that's popular here in the West is called the Yoga Sutras, which was written by Patanjali. He's kind of a Shakespearean figure. We don't know if he was one person or multiple people, but we do know he was a curator. He didn't invent all of this. He was a curator uh, who pulled together a lot of these ancient teachings and wrote them down. Uh, what's interesting about the Yoga Sutras is it reads very much like a textbook or manual about how to achieve enlightenment through an eight-limbed path or an eight-step program, uh, which is pretty interesting. However, when I was in this year of total overwhelm, what I found was that enlightenment was the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't need... <laughs> to achieve this like blissed out state, which is called Samadhi, I needed a life raft. Like I needed to survive to bedtime amidst this like messy new reality of diapers and bedpans and arguing on the phone with the insurance company and all the things. And so I really dove back into that text and I found one sutra, uh, which just means like an aphorism. Sutra means thread, but uh, the book's divided into four parts. So this sutra, it's 2.1. So it's the first sentence of the second book. Uh, is called the Kriya Yoga Sutra. And this word Kriya is really interesting because Kriya means action. So while I found Patanjali's whole book was actually very much more targeted towards maybe someone who's meditating in a cave or, you know, a young man back in ancient India who was like, you know, the equivalent of a young priest, you know, at the time, right. that Patanjali actually slipped in this one sentence about yoga in action as opposed to yoga for enlightenment or yoga as a recluse. And this sutra is really simple. It just says yoga in action is, and then there's three words. And those three words, which we can dive into one by one if you want, are svadhyaya, tapas, and ishvari pranidhana. Svadhyaya, the first one, scholars often translate to mean self-study. But the take that I, the way I approach it in the book is that it's so much more than that because and let me know if you can relate to this. It's like, what's the point of studying myself and self-awareness and knowing myself if I don't use that information to actually nourish myself in the present moment? Uh, so I actually translate that concept to mean like a nourishing self-awareness, your ability to know yourself and take care of yourself. For example, do you know that uh, every time you skip lunch, <laughs> you end up having a tense argument with your spouse later that day, right? Like, is that something you've noticed or observed? And if so, what do you do with that information? So Svadhyaya is such a beautiful concept because it's asking us to introspect in a world where right now we're usually, we're always, let's be honest, we're always externally focused. Uh, so let me pause so because we can go through these one by one. But this is like the base skill for yoga in action because prana, which the yogis call energy, we, we can generate it, but that takes some time and it is 
a bit of a finite resource in the sense that, you know, when we wake up, we only have so much energy, even if we do a lot of circulation practices. So we need to use that energy wisely. And if we can't take care of ourselves, there's really no hope as showing up as who we want to be for our family, for our friends. And it may seem selfish, but it's like the whole put on your life jacket before anyone else's uh, analogy. I love it. Um, yeah. So you took kind of self-study to its conclusion of what you're going to do with it. And what I love Self-nourishment. Is, you know, yeah. 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 You know, I talk to my clients a lot about these three principles that, that we do in a loop, which is explore, accept, transform, right? And explore is this first piece of study, right? The reflection, the pausing, that observer effect that you talked about earlier, right? Yoga gave you this ability to not just depersonalize, but get a little bit of distance from your feelings, a little bit of distance from your experience and understand that your entity having an experience, you are not the experience. And so, you know, self-study to me, and I, man, I love that example you gave because I think most people aren't aware that because they, and I'm including myself in this, by the way, mm-hmm. not aware that because we skip lunch, we have a fight with our spouse, or we're not aware that um, on Tuesdays, because we have this one meeting at 1 PM, we show up differently by dinner because the meeting is draining for us or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, we all have these patterns. Um, Bruce Lipton, I don't know if you, I think we've talked about his writing when we talked about right before this podcast, you know, talks about how something like 90% of our actions happen in our subconscious. So we're, we're kind of an autopilot all day. And what I hear is that you loved about this is practicing yoga regularly takes you out of that autopilot and into self-study, self-nourishment mode. Yeah, I love what you just said. It reminded me of like Svadhyaya is like that flashlight, right, of investigation and going inward. And just to tie this together for people before we move on is one of the anecdotes I give in the book (laughs) is as someone who was a former dancer and very type A and an overachiever, I remember being in a yoga class very early on in my journey. And I was in a pigeon pose, which for those of you who don't know, is this very deep hip stretch. And I was pushing myself as far as I could go. And the teacher walked over to me and I immediately, my inner dialogue was like, oh, she's probably going to compliment me because I'm doing this pose so well. And instead, what she said to me is she said, notice if you've gone too far in this pose. If you've gone too far in this pose, it's likely you push yourself too hard in life as well. And it was this mic drop moment for me because I realized that there was this voice, this critic inside my head that I was not aware of that was saying, go deeper, push harder, no pain, no gain. You need to be the best, right? And this is what's so beautiful about if people do choose to have a physical asana practice, a physical yoga practice, which you don't have to actually, the book is full of just habits you can do without ever setting foot on a mat. But if you do choose to, it's so beautiful because these poses, like the point of the poses isn't to do them well. The point of the poses is to gain more self-awareness as you do them, right? Like, are you the person who's always pushing deeper into a stretch or are you the person who's really rigid and muscling into it? Are you the, you know, like everything that you're doing on the mat, uh, you know, comparing yourself to other people in the room, for example, which is something I used to do, right? Like who's who's folding forward deeper, right? Like all of that is showing us how we show up in life. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, right? There's a place for looking outside for models and ideas of what do I want and who seems to have that in the outside world. But what I hear from what you're saying right now, which is really cool and really interesting is 
part of self-reflection is where knowing where we've done that too much is where we said, Hey, look, now it's time to go inward. Now it's time to understand. I may have picked up practices that, that could be yoga class. That could be being a dancer and bringing your dance practices into the yoga mat, right. And into a yoga studio, but then being able to check yourself and go, wait, I'm not competing for a role here, right? This is not, this is not dancing. I'm in yoga. The, the context is different and therefore I show up differently, which is a huge part of being human, right? When I work with leaders, executives, entrepreneurs, people who are just trying to make a better life for themselves, you don't want you, yourself to behave the exact same way in all contexts. That's not necessarily adaptive. That's not necessarily useful. So mm-hmm. part of self-study might even be how do I show up here versus how am I supposed to show up there? But having an explicit volitional role and attending to it and then planning and, and showing up the way you want to in life, not just letting it happen. Yeah, not just being on autopilot because my autopilot was to be so hard on myself. That's what that really revealed to me. Like I never stopped to think about anything otherwise. So, and this is a great transition into that. that. Yeah, Um, no, this is a great transition into the second um, ethical tenet of yoga in action, yoga life, right? Which is tapas. And so that word is really interesting because all of these Sanskrit words can be translated about a dozen different ways. And tapas is one of the most difficult to translate into English. Uh, it's often translated as heat, fire, discipline, focus. The way that I decided to click into it in the book is that it is the alchemization process. It's the heat of your burning desire to evolve. And the way I distilled this into a cheat phrase for myself, which I invite other people to use if you like, is simply cultivate the opposite. Cultivate the opposite. So if my default program is to push so hard, like I was in that stretch, how could I cultivate the opposite and do something different than my ingrained pattern? That might look like backing off, taking a deep breath right? Coming out of the pose a little bit, even though that's humbling because now I'm, I'm not the, you know, best, whatever that means, right? In the mm. class. Um, tapas is always asking us to expand and do something different than our natural tendency. Another practical example I like to give here with tapas is for someone who maybe has a scarcity mindset, which I also used to have and is very frugal with money, Practicing tapas for you would be like leaving a huge tip at a restaurant, right? Like that's going to feel really uncomfortable because you're like, that's not what I normally do. What if I need that money later? It brings up all of this stuff. But Mm. if you can expand your comfort with discomfort, that's another great definition of tapas, expanding your comfort with discomfort. Like, But it's, it's the actual heat of that process, that, uh, that, that friction, right? Where you're doing something that like starting a podcast when you're afraid to use your voice or any of these things that make us grow. And this makes so much sense because if we want to change, we need to actually start doing things differently. And so I love this cheat phrase of cultivate the opposite. I use it all the time because it just constantly shows you like what your default program is. And then Sometimes I ask it and I'm like, no, I still want to do the other thing. But at least it, it invites the opportunity to give yourself a chance to give myself a chance. Exactly. I love it. So I literally have started doing that practice. I've been fighting, I'll say, against my or I've been pushing on my abundance muscles for the last few years really, really heavily because I had a, a deep 
a scarcity mindset. I just grew up around it and it's just what felt natural. And I've literally started, it's funny that you use that example. An Uber and Lyft apps, if I take an Uber now, I try to make it a point, unless the ride was actually bad, I try <laughs> to make it a point to always leave a tip, which I never used to do. Mm-hmm. And the idea, what I hear from you, and I always tell people to get comfortable being uncomfortable, but you're using a very specific example of that, uh, which is do the opposite. And mm-hmm. and what I like about that so much is it's easier for us sometimes because we know what we normally do. And it may be uncomfortable to do the opposite, but we know what that would be. Right. So if you don't speak in public ever and you, there's an opportunity to get in front of people and speak, you would know to yourself, well, I would never do this. That means I have to do it. An example. And, and, and here's the beautiful thing about when you cultivate the opposite, you don't know how things are going to go because you, 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 it's like the road that you haven't traveled, which is why it's terrifying. But then it also often opens up new opportunities. So again, let's, I love to teach with practical examples. So one of the ones I give in the book is I'm a workaholic. So to cultivate the opposite one day, I decided that I would stop working right at like, you know, 4.30 or 5, something that felt painful for me. Like every finger was trying to cling to the keyboard. And I said, nope, I'm going to cultivate the opposite. And a, a trick I use here, which is kind of funny, is that can be helpful for folks if you want to really step into tapas is to invent an alter ego. So like uh, someone who's like the opposite of you. So since I'm a workaholic, I was like, I have an alter ego in my head that I call Elizabeth, which is my middle name. And she's like the opposite of me. Like she loves doing like Pinterest craft with her kids. <laughs> she has like infinite patience. And so I said, you know what, what would Elizabeth do? I'm going to cultivate the opposite. She would take her kids for a walk. And uh, so I, I went for a walk with my kids and, and lo and behold, once I'm in the woods and I'm walking with them, I feel joy. I feel so joyful. And when I come home, that joy is within my body and it's overflowing in such a way that my partner, my husband responds to me totally differently than he usually does after work when I'm tearing myself away from the computer and wishing I got more done. He could just see how relaxed and, and beautiful my energy was. And he said, you know what? Like I'll put the kids to bed. All of a sudden that freed up three hours of time that I didn't know I was going to get. I sit down at my computer and the problem that I had been fussing over before going for the walk appears to me in a totally new way. Like I'm able to figure out a solution almost instantaneously. And so even though this might seem silly, the reason I like to share an example this specific with these steps is like when we cultivate the opposite, there's a domino effect that often occurs where things turned out better than we ever could have imagined. And it opens up these new portals of where we get to reinvent ourselves and show up in life in new ways. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I used to think this stuff was what I'm about to say right now is really woo woo. And first of all, I married Sophie. Secondly, um, <laughs> I've, I've been through I've been through enough in life right now, and you know maybe I know a little bit more than I knew back then, or maybe I'm you know still constantly learning. But there's another piece which is, and you already started on this path. So I know how to do what I know how to do, and that's gotten me here. And if I keep doing more of that, it's going to get me a different version of here. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, maybe kind of, you know, some lateral move. But in order to take my life to a different place, I'm going to have to do different things. Mm-hmm. And this practicing of the opposite gives you two different things. First of all, it lets you see what life looks like when you behave differently. Even if you run little experiments, right? Like for me, giving a little money to the um, to the Uber driver extra on top of the ride. Or for you, tearing yourself out 
you know, five o'clock is the time most people check out from work. But for you, and I totally understand this, it was tearing yourself apart. But then you let another part of you out. And that part didn't get to live that much, right? He didn't, that part of you, Elizabeth, didn't get to live out in the world quite as much as Brett. And so now you got to see what is life like when Elizabeth is out here a little bit, right? What, what does that feel like? Yeah, my husband likes Elizabeth a lot more, just side note, right? Who knew? Shocker. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, Todd Herman talks about kind of that alter ego effect a lot too, right? And there's a concept in psychology called, uh, it's, it's a school in the internal family systems that says we all have a lot of parts in us. Mm -hmm. It's just, we have learned over time to let specific parts take the wheel most of the time. They're the ones that control the action. And what I'm hearing from you is part of what yoga has allowed you to do, this yoga life, this, you know, um, tapas in this specific situation, right? The third, the second uh, of these concepts that you're referring to allowed you to remember that there were these other parts of you, allowed you to give them the light of day and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, when I leave work early, when Brett leaves work early and lets Elizabeth out the door and Elizabeth goes and has some fun, my relationship with my husband is better. And actually, I get inspiration. So let's let Elizabeth out to play a little bit more because my life also improves. And most of us, and this is so what's so beautiful about what you're talking about right now, most of us don't give ourselves that chance to experiment with other versions of us. And I think we don't give ourselves that chance because it feels frightening. For me, my workaholism is how I feel safe. Right? That's how I feel in control. It's, it's a coping mechanism at the end of the day. And so I think it's interesting for us all to inquire about like most of the things we're doing habitually on repeat is because they were ingrained in our childhood or because we have some theory in our mind that that's what's going to lead to safety, right? Like I want to provide for my family. I need to work as hard as possible, you know, but again, just like you so beautifully articulated, it means that other parts of us wither and die and don't ever get to see the light of day all right what's the third part i'm i'm, I'm on my the edge of my seat over here all right so the third principle is ishvari pranidhana which again many translations some translators actually translate this word to mean god like with a capital g others use it to uh they call it universal intelligence source energy faith it's this idea that there's a benevolent power in the universe. And this concept is really interesting because it ties into the other two and it ties into tapas. If we're going to make different actions and we're going to choose to show up and do things differently, I think Patanjali included this concept of God or a benevolent universe because it's a lot easier to make those different changes if you believe there is a positive a governing force in the world. And I think what's so interesting about this is that it is kind of, you get to choose, right? Like you could choose to think the opposite, right? Like terrible things happen in the world and the world's an evil place and like Murphy's law, like anything that can go wrong will go wrong. But when you do, the person who suffers is you. So I think it's interesting that he chose this ethical tenant of faith and the way I distill it down in the book to like a cheap phrase, kind of like we've been talking about, um, is relinquish control. Relinquish control, relinquish control, relinquish control. Because the reason we're all controlling so much, whether it's me gripping to the keyboard or, you know, whatever it is we're doing uh, or insisting that we're right in an argument, right? Like the, the reason we control so much is because 
we are afraid. So I always, I, I say beneath every need to control is, is fear ultimately. So faith is the antidote to that. So relinquishing control is another one of my favorite skills. It helps you not sweat the small stuff. It uh, completely can revitalize your perspective. Let's try to think of a practical example for this one. So <laughs> we can use my, my relationship again. Uh, my husband offered to plan a surprise birthday party for me. Or not, not a surprise birthday party, obviously, because he's talking about, but like a birthday party where he's going to invite all my friends. And, and I had yeah. a lot of trouble relinquishing control of this party. I wanted to check in on him. I wanted to be like, did you order appetizers? Uh, do you know who did you invite? Uh, what kind of appetizers? You know, like he told me some things that were concerning. <laughs> he was like, I'm just going to heat up stuff from Trader Joe's. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, so, um, you know, and like, this is not the kind of party I would have organized. Exactly. But the point is that the exercise there was for me to receive the party that he wanted to give me. So it was such a beautiful mm -hmm. exercise in relinquishing control. And at the end of the day, he planned a party that was totally different than what I would have planned if I had planned it for myself. But the day ended up, again, kind of like the unexpected benefits. It ended up so beautiful. It was so unique uh, because he had arranged it. And it was a great opportunity for me to really flex my muscles in relinquishing control and noticing how much I did want to control. And then when I did want to control, I forced myself to ask, like, what's the fear behind this need to control? And I, I'd literally list things out either in my journal or in my mind, like, that my friends are going to think we have really poor taste in food, right? That my, like, and what's interesting about forcing yourself to name the fear and actually list it out and look at it is that a lot of the times when we do this, the thing we're afraid of is either not that big a deal. Like when I did that, I was like, I, that's not that big a deal, right? I don't care. It's either not that big a deal or something that's really far in the future that's not going to happen anytime soon. Right. So I, mm. there you can also relinquish control. I'm like, if something's not happening in the next 48 hours, I'm relinquishing control. Like my husband and I started talking about now where my son should go to college would probably erupt into some sort of argument, but like, I'm just going to let that go because it's not happening immediately. Yeah. So anytime you can relinquish control, it's just such a great opportunity to save your energy because we waste, let's again, talk about prana energy management. We waste so much energy trying to control people and circumstances that ultimately we have no control over. And I think that the yogis were really experts in energy management. And so they said, we're only going to focus on the things we can control, which are, which is our breathing, how we're moving our body, what we put on our body, what time we sleep and wake up. But like, let's be honest beyond that. I listen in the book, like there's really not that many things within our direct control. And that's terrifying to accept, but it's why we need this concept of Ishvari Pranidhana, you know, which has this dual meaning of also trusting in a benevolent universe. So when you start relinquishing control, like because I didn't plan this birthday party myself and hound him about every detail, I had all this extra time to do yoga, to take a bath, to invest in things that feel nourishing to me. So it's, it's also like a loop. Are you seeing how the more that you relinquish control, the more energy you free up for svadhyaya, the self-awareness that leads to self-care. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I wrote down a few different things that you were talking about, you know, relinquishing control. And I wonder how you feel about this. You also got to experience a very different birthday party than if you had been involved in it, right? And so going back to those different parts of ourselves, 
we live, we don't see it, but we live a very constrained, limited life unless we constantly push ourselves, as you're talking about throughout this, to experience things we're not used to. And it doesn't matter what you do, right? Like you could be somebody who loves jumping out of planes. And so that could be, you know, expansive and risk taking, et cetera. But maybe you spend four days a week jumping out of planes and that becomes your norm. For you going and sitting in an office at, at a computer, could be the opposite and that could feel constraining and risky but what i'm hearing from you is pay attention to what you're in charge of right put most of your focus on i also was writing to myself when you were talking about faith versus fear it's a lot easier to also be scared about the things you don't control because there's nothing you can do about it anyway and so we can sit how many of us sit and spin in our heads and I know people really successful and people who are really struggling who spend a lot of time in this place and it's it's heavy to sit and worry about things that you, you can't change anyway because you can keep spinning your wheels on those topics for days, weeks, and months and have absolutely no influence about on how they turn up. Whereas if you move yourself to putting most of your focus on the things you actually influence and control yourself, you can shift your universe, right? You can actually change the world that you're in. And if we wrap all this back up and this being part of what you found in the yoga sutras for yourself as somebody who was really anxious and was having a lot of experience of fear in the world this you know working towards the negative right like experiencing things you didn't experience otherwise while reflecting on yourself and also relinquishing control over the things that you don't get to impact anyway obviously gave you a lot of peace and it sounds like a habitual way to show up day after day and keep doing it, right? Reflect, do the opposite, relinquish control over and over and over. Yeah, exactly. And I think what I always tell myself is that there's so much we can worry about. There's so little I can actually control. I mean, I can't even control my children. I mean, you probably have the same, like there's really very little we can do to control them at the end of the day. So the accepting that and then choosing instead to fill myself up right? With energy, with my own self-care. And this is a lot of investigation and self-awareness into like, well, what is self-care for me? What does that look like? But the beauty, if you're able to do this, is that then when something bad, quote unquote, does happen, right? I am going to be able to respond no matter what, because I've been taking care of my energy and, and my energy is full. So yeah. that to me has been very helpful, right? Because otherwise it can be like, oh, well, self-care seems selfish or shouldn't, shouldn't you try to control, you know? And again, parenting is one of the hardest places to navigate this. And I do touch on it in the book, but I have found when I relinquish control, even if it's just in my own mind, that my children respond to me differently. So for example, instead of telling my five-year-old, uh, clean up your place, put your dishes in the sink. Instead, I say to him, I would love this table to be all clean. And then I pause and I trust, I have that Ishvara Pranidana, that trust, that faith that he wants to help, that he is benevolent, that the universe is benevolent, right? And there's something very subconscious that happens where when I approach it that way, it's like he rises and he's very excited to help. And can we sense how the energy of that is so different than the constriction of go clean up or, you, you know, and, and sometimes I relinquish control on my own mind and he, he doesn't help. 
right? He's like, runs and goes, plays with a truck, but I don't make it mean anything, right? That's the thing. I don't make what he does or doesn't do, my ability to control him. I don't make that mean anything about whether he's a good kid or I'm a good mom or anything else about our relationship. So even just doing this in your own mind, relinquishing control is so powerful. Oh yeah. The way we show up to the people around us completely changes the way they behave. And I was actually thinking to myself as you were giving that example, but I may literally test that out with my kids here in the near future. I don't think we really want kids who do what they're told. We want kids who are helpful. We want kids who are good. Who are what respectful. I love yeah, yeah. Did is when you say, Oh, you know, I I made dinner. I would really love for this table to to be clear and and you know put back. It also trains them to not not training like a dog trains. It's kind of like they're listening for your needs, and if they care in that moment, they're in their place where they can help. Then they go help your needs versus just following directions. And that's a very different level of a functioning human too, right? If we're not trying, I don't think as a whole we don't want to become, and I don't think we're trying to create other robots who just get directions and go follow those directions even though that's most of what we do with our kids most of what we do with our kids is we tell them what to do and we hope that they follow the directions whereas what we really want them to do is have agency and be able to direct themselves but it's a shortcut right because mm -hmm. we hope that if we tell them what to do they get there i really love that example a lot um book just came out but you already mentioned this and i want to make sure that i, I tie on it this, this book is not just a summary but the a culmination of work you've been doing, helping people bring these yogic principles into life in general. So talk a little bit about other than the book, some of the other ways that you work with people, that you help them. Anyway, because this is a lot and it might sound simple because it's three principles. We already talked about all the different ways in, in which those three principles come into life. How else can people get, you know, ways to understand how to incorporate this into their lives? Yeah, thank you for asking. Well, full disclosure, if anyone does get the book, we're going to go deeper than these three principles. And I am going to ask you to start developing a personalized yoga ritual uh, that's totally module, modular. So we craft a 20-minute uh, routine together in the book. There's quizzes that guide you towards your soulmate postures. The, that means the poses that are really appropriate for you and your energy. Uh, so it's very simple. And then I say at the end of the book, you know, if you don't have 20 minutes, here's how you can do it in five. Here's how you can do it in 10. Um, here's what I'd skip or leave out depending on what kind of day you have coming up. Again, all about energy management. And then if you decide, you know what, I don't love the ritual, you can just do what I call the yoga habits, which are many of the things that we've been talking about. We've been focused really on the philosophical in this conversation, which I love. So thank you. But just know there's also many little physical things you can do to, you know, stretch between you know, emails and I have yoga in the car and all sorts of like in between moments that help you uh, where you can fit yoga in. Uh, but yeah, if people want to connect further... by the way, just for the listeners right now, sorry, one of the, one of the things I just want to mm -hmm. say for the listeners right now really quickly, one of the things I love about your work in general is making it simple, right? I think the main thing I hear when I talk to people about, let's say meditation, but definitely yoga, um, is they say, oh, I don't have time to learn how to do that or do something new. And what I loved in our conversations and in your book is you just, you make it simple, you make it short, you make it modular, you know, take what fits and bring it in. It's so much better to bring in the practices and the elements that really fit your life and work for you than to worry about starting a five hour a week yoga practice, you know? 
Thank you for, for saying that. And yeah, there's a chapter called less is more literally. Uh, I'm very honest and this yoga is my life and there's days I don't make it to the mat, right? Like there's so many demands on our time. Life is happening. That's not something I'm ashamed of anymore. It's like the reframe I want to really help everyone make is that all these little practices add up these little mindset shifts, these little ways to sneak movement into your day. And just like when you open a savings account and you put money in that bank, uh, the money accrues, it gets bigger. And for some reason, we think we need to go to a class or have this structured thing. And of course, I'm not saying don't do that. That's phenomenal. But there, we need more approaches. We need more ways. And so yes. even one moment of breath work amidst the chaos or amidst the arguments is worthwhile. Even just a couple moments between emails is worthwhile. It's all money in your nervous system bank. And Absolutely. yeah, so. Love and that, love that. So tell us about the online piece of what you yeah. So if anyone wants to become a yoga teacher or just deepen their own yoga knowledge, I do offer yoga teacher training online. I was one of the first people to put yoga teacher training online way back in 2015. Uh, so that is another way that beyond the book, if anyone wants to work with me or just loves yoga, but wants a really holistic approach, that's also taking into account the philosophy and the history and really approaching the practice as like the pose is not the goal. The awareness in the pose is the goal. Um, I have a couple different trainings and a, different styles and, uh, it's, it's a really beautiful experience because we're interactive. There's an app, there's a manual, but we're also live on zoom and really connecting with each other. So it's a really rewarding program. One of the things, you know, having known so many people who've done yoga teacher training that I, I love about yoga teacher training compared to almost any other physical training is because of the philosophical component of so many of the pieces, it's like this, it's a way to practice around exercise and movement, of course, but it's also this way to bring in a life perception, a, um, a shift in perspective into your life, right? Because yoga, as you just mentioned so beautifully for us, is so much about paying attention. And I think one of the biggest biggest resources anybody listening to this right now can have in their life is to get what you said right at the beginning. And that is to get an opportunity to just get a tiny bit of distance from your experience and be able to observe it. And that little space gives you room to act, to plan, to make decisions instead of being taken over by the experience of life. And, you know, in yoga teacher training, you every you know i mean sophie's gone through so many of our of our friends are, are part of that world many of whom by the way are not yoga teachers like they don't they don't go teach yoga after they do it for the the study uh during it so i think that's really important to say yeah i agree i think uh i i know that about 60 percent of every incoming class i have is doing it for their own personal reasons for their own personal development uh so it's 60 percent really wow yeah mm -hmm. and I and didn't realize it was that big yeah, I mean, it might be different for other trainings, but I do, you know, gather a lot of data about our students and ask them at the end what their intentions were coming in. And I think because we also have a, you know, the pose is not the goal method, we attract people of all different sizes, shapes all around the world. It is so beautiful because you get to see what these poses look like in all sorts of different types of bodies, which is something I didn't really have in my first in-person training. 
uh, online was not a thing at all back when I did my training. But, you know, I just had like the eight other people who happened to all be kind of fit and honestly have a similar body type to me when I went through training. So that's something I so appreciate about our community. So we can actually really look and, and just see how do these poses work well for you? Um, where, what poses should you just not do? I mean, I'm pretty upfront about that. And same in the book. I say at the top of the book, you know, you just need really six to 10 postures. That's it. If you want to do more, really? that's great. But that plus breathing is enough. So that's really where the less is more. And I, I hope listeners don't be intimidated because starting a personalized yoga ritual can be so easeful, so easy when you find those poses that really match your mind body type and serve to balance you. You don't need the whole alphabet of asana. You just need the few that work mm. for you. Do you find that that's a pretty, I feel like that's a pretty different perspective than many yoga teachers have because I feel like many yoga teachers and I'll speak to the teachers I know and the teachers I've, I've visited, you know, they have sort of the, the, the flows that they've learned, the, the post sequences that they've learned, and they're pretty dogmatic about those, I'll call them standard or standby flows and, and sequences. And what I'm hearing from you, which I lean on so much in my coaching work with people, right? I may have a hundred toolkits and 500 worksheets, but one of my clients may only use seven of those. And those seven might be the ones that they need, whereas three of the seven don't work at all for another client. And it's my job as a practitioner to, to get wise with the tools, not try to hammer a specific approach on someone. Yoga has a lot of rules. And I think the gift of that year that I talked about at the beginning, where I became a new mom, lost my father, but scaled my business all in a 12 month period was that out of necessity, I started breaking rules. <laughs> I started saying, you know, we, we don't have time for six sun salutes before the next thing, right? I'm going to mix, you know, I'm so tired and depleted right now, but I really want to do my Kundalini practice, but I, I'm so tired. I'm just going to do that. And then yin, um, I'm actually going to alter some things to make it work for me. And I was forced to sort of be a mad scientist. And in that process, I discovered the framework that I present in the book. And the message I want to share with people is not that group classes are, are, are bad or that you shouldn't go. Do, I mean, these are beautiful experiences, but there's a thousand books about that already, you know, with, with like outlining a particular style. Uh, what I think is powerful is, again, to give a, a concrete example, when I was in that horrific year, uh, which was also beautiful in many ways, but I would often set a timer to practice because, and sometimes that timer would be like 10 minutes, seven minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, it was never that long, but I remember I was really able to deeply tune inward one day, Svadhyaya, and kind of figured out what poses I needed, what would shift my energy and did something that was kind of funky. Like honestly, another yoga teacher would be like, this is maybe not the traditional sequence with the warm up peak pose, cool down or, you know, and I remember doing this and it being so nourishing, like a, like a tonic that was just designed for me and feeling so calm and blissed out. And honestly, as good as I feel after a 90 minute group class, and I looked at my timer. I think I had set my timer for 20 minutes that day, and it hadn't even gone off yet. I was at minute 16. And because I so prioritized what worked for my mind-body type, 
uh, how I wanted to shift my energy, really listen to myself. I was able to kind of enter that deep flow state so much faster. So I would love to help more people kind of get a bigger bang for their yoga buck. Again, yeah. I at the end of the book, I also say like, if you want to make your personalized 20 minute ritual, 90 minutes, here's how to do that too. Um, but most of us need something that's adaptable and less can be more if you just learn a tiny bit about how these poses and breathing techniques affect your energy. I love it. Yeah. And, you know, look, there's a reality, right? We're moving into a world where people do want pieces that fit into their everyday life. There is so much coming at us every single day. I remember the days where, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and you'd have to wait. 30 minutes to an hour before you would figure out what was waiting for you. That could be voicemails. It could have been email messages, but you needed to log on to stuff, right? I mean, there was a time, what about you got on a plane and you would get off and there'd be nothing waiting for you because no information had come in during that time frame. We, we are in such a faster world. And I think your book is one of the first ones I've ever seen that allows people to catch up to ancient principles but how they get applied in the modern age. And I'll just say this, you know, some of my most high achieving clients, getting them to get into breath work and yoga can become that pause that they need to be able to reflect. Mm -hmm. It's like anywhere else, they're constantly looking at targets and hunting for the next thing that has to be done. And it's only through these practices and the idea of being able to do it for them for 20 minutes instead of having them commit to 60 minutes, which is a really tough commitment for some people, is really beautiful. And I'm sure you found that in your work. Mm. Yes, thank you. Let me have a question. You, you like stories and you like concrete examples. So I know as teachers, we always have, there's, there's some of these, as soon as I ask it, that you'll know. Walk me through an experience you've had with somebody where you coached them or you worked with them directly. And they were really, really struggling before whether they had tried yoga or not, whether whatever. I mean, I, I don't really care about the specific circumstance. I want to leave that open for you. But through the application of these principles, they were able to integrate whatever, whatever combination of techniques that then shifted their life, shifted their experience. I'd love to walk through an experience like that with you. Mm. So many women in my community, uh, and I people everywhere, but I say women specifically because I'm, I work with a lot of women. Sure. They spend a lot of time and I spend a lot of time coaching them on what Svadhyaya self-care looks like for them. And I think this is across the board. We're, we're so disconnected that we don't even know what nourishes us. So I actually do a lot of coaching and training. I divide self-care into different levels because I think sometimes we're like, oh, well, my workout or, you know, calling my mom, like these things kind of um, pretend like they're self-care, right? Because it's like, oh, doing my workout's good for me. I should call and check on my mom each day. But those actually aren't deeply nourishing. So a lot of what I do is help them come up with what I call level two self-care. And level two self-care is frivolous. It's indulgent. In, it's almost like the more wacky, the better. Uh, and these are things that don't have to be expensive. Like for me, a level two self-care is like eating really weird food combinations after my kids are asleep and watching some, you know, indulgent show that I like. Or another level two self-care is I used to like to dance, still do like 
little dance routines in the morning to get my body moving. I was like, what would make this more frivolous and fun and feel even more nourishing? And I was like, if I had a disco ball. So I actually got a disco ball. Um, so it's just sometimes we're so serious and we have no idea what actually lights us up. I've had clients start um, ice skating or figure skating again. And they haven't done that since they were a child. For one of my students, just she said, having bone broth in her fridge at all times so she can nourish herself and nourish her family anytime someone's hangry is like a huge level two self-care, like the act of making it and knowing it's there. Like she just finds that whole process so nourishing. But the thing is, it takes a lot of work with people to help figure out what these things are uh, because we're so heads down and busy. Like, like you said, I mean, all these devices are sucking our energy from us all the time. And we forget to even eat meals, let alone like, wow, what lights us up? I always invite people to also really think about their childhood too. What did they love doing as a child? I loved singing as a child. So I, I just put out a chanting album, <laughs> which I'm not promoting or trying to sell in any way. It was just like a way for me to have frivolous fun in my business that was reclaiming like you've talked about a different part of myself right yeah creativity is man i love i love that you hit on that um literally just said it in a workshop yesterday to hundreds of people and it's i asked how many of you have something creative you do that just brings you joy and out of 200 people in the room i think eight raised their hand and i checked again i said okay i'm gonna give you a pause i want to just make sure it's not just not raising your hand and some people were shaking their head. They go, I haven't done anything just fun and creative in years, if not a couple of decades. And that that is incredibly nourishing, right? Um, as kids, you just took that for granted. Yeah, we've been indoctrinated that productivity is the highest good. And all the fun has been squeezed out. But the irony is, is that when we do indulge in those fun things, whether it's a walk in the woods or singing karaoke in the bathtub, or you know, whatever it is for you and you indulge, you get so much energy. It's an, it, it, the self-care becomes an energy generating activity okay. uh, that gives you this surplus of prana where then you're, you're just able to you know, focus on the people you love, actually get more done. So that's a huge re reframe that I, I coach and work with a lot of people in the Yoga for Self Mastery program on is just this reframe of putting pleasure and fun first because the huge creative surge, the energy surge that you get from that will then power you through all your admin tasks or whatever you have to do that you're not looking forward to, yeah. which is literally the opposite of how I used to live my life. I used to say, okay, when I get all these admin or tasks I'm not looking right. forward to done, then I can have fun, right? Then I can, never. yeah. And that always ends up being never. I love it. Yeah. Um, all right, look, I love so much of what we just talked about, but I want, and Sorry, I made you focus on the, um, the the more kind of spiritual and um, philosophical. I think to me, that's what underlines the physical oftentimes, right? It's kind of like the the grounding to so much of the physical. So thank you for doing it and, and indulging me in that. Um, I really heard a lot today about how, you know, stopping reflecting and, and having faith in what you are putting into the world and releasing the rest, right? Just letting go of the rest is a huge part of it. And how you got to doing that in yoga, right? You took this ancient practice that has all these rules, as you mentioned, and because you were faced with a time in your life where those rules didn't 
apply or couldn't apply. Couldn't you couldn't apply. make them apply anyway, right? You made them apply in new ways to your own life. And I think it's it's so fitting for the age that we're in right now where nothing against people who love going to 90-minute classes every single day and going twice. But what I run into a lot are people who say, that's not feasible for me. That That can't be on the menu. And then unfortunately, that means they let go of all of it. Exactly. And what you've found is a way to make it more um, attainable for so many of us. And so I really, really, really appreciate that. I think you're kind of going on a book tour right now, right? A little bit. Yes. I've been going on some new shows and traveling and it's a huge project to bring uh, a book into the world, but that's why I'm so grateful for your time and sharing it with your community, your amazing community. Um, So thank you. What's next? Do you know? I mean, I know you just came back from a trip, but do you have anything fun planned for the next uh, month or so? We're in December of 23. So well, of course, I'm really looking forward to the holiday season with my kids and relinquishing a lot of control. Pro tip for everyone, we tend to have a lot of control around holidays. So our regular need to control usually escalates. I don't know what the next holiday will be at the time of this recording. But, you know, if you ever wonder why you get so so triggered or upset around the holidays, that's, that's often why, because we have an ideal in our mind of how we want something to look or want something to go. So... Uh, I'll be practicing lots of extra relinquishing control uh, in the Are next. Are you going to let your husband plan some weeks. of the some of the hangouts and the meals? I am, I am, and I'm going to, you know, just focus on my receiving skills and uh, nourishing myself. Um, I love it. Yeah. Before we leave, uh, Brett, let everybody know where can they find you. What are your handles? What website should people go visit? Uh, obviously, the book will be on Amazon and things like that. But any of the information about how people can find you. Yep. So the book is called Yoga Life. It's available anywhere books are sold. And my website is brettlarkin.com. So it's B-R-E-T-T, two T's, Larkin, uh, L-A-R-K-I-N.com. That's where all the trainings and courses and my membership site is. YouTube is my biggest platform with um, half a million yogis on there, new videos pretty much every week. So that's uh, Brett Larkin Yoga. And I'm at Larkin Yoga TV on Instagram. Thank you so much, Brett. Thank you for coming here. Enjoy the holidays and your family. And again, really beautiful work putting this out in the world. Thank you.